You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, everybody. If you're interested in learning how to leverage LinkedIn for your business, this episode is sponsored by my book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful LinkedIn Users. To get your free copy, just send a text to 44222 with the word seven habits. That's the number seven habits to 44222. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is Carmen Perry. And he's the co-founder of Kula Partners, which is an agency that helps leading B2B manufacturers craft digital experiences that transform how they engage buyers, serve customers, and outpace their competition online. Carmen's also the co-host of the Kula Ring Manufacturing Marketer Podcast. Over his three decades in marketing and communications, Carmen's career has taken him from the halls of Canada's parliament to client and agency-side marketing leadership roles. Along the way, he's advised Fortune 100 clients, governments, and nonprofit organizations. Welcome to the show, Carmen. Dennis, an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener and a first-time caller, as they say. Yes. Uh, Great to be chatting. Perfect. Thank you so much. We're going to talk about something really cool today. I don't even think we've ever talked about it. We've had 100-plus episodes here on Growth Experts, and I don't think we've ever talked about the concept of the changing landscape of B2B buying and how to market to it. Things are changing, right? Rapidly with technology, rapidly with social, all kinds of changes going on. And those changes are causing buyers to buy a little bit differently. So we're going to dive into that today. We're going to talk about service business. We're going to talk about manufacturers, which is kind of your specialty. So, but before we do that, do me a quick favor, let the audience know kind of quick backstory, give them a minute or two backstory of how you how you landed in Halifax with this this amazing business that you have, and uh, we'll dig in from there. Wow, that's a it's a long and and, and sordid affair. I, I had a a very uh, misguided early uh, direction in my career where I was involved in politics for a while. Ouch! And, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, so um, it, you know, y'all in in America have figured politics out a little bit more, and that at least political professionals can make a bit of money there. But here in Canada, it's a sentence to be poor. So I quickly uh, pivoted from that and uh, moved from uh, being a, a client and agency side marketer to to starting my own business here uh, with Cooler Partners, and we've been we've been at it now for about a decade, and uh, it's been an interesting ride, Dennis. I don't mind saying. Awesome. So let's tell us a little bit about the company. It's did you raise any capital, or is it a, is it more of a smaller private company? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, no, we're a very uh, small uh, focused uh, digital agency uh, with uh, no, uh, I guess, ambitions to be uh, five hundred people. We we really try to be very uh, focused and expert in what we do, and uh, so we're one hundred percent bootstrapped. There's no raising of capital or anything of that nature, and. Uh, and we work exclusively with manufacturers, helping them to, uh, as you mentioned, uh, transform their marketing and sales to meet with today's uh, changing B2B buyer expectations. I love the niching down, right? I love the fact that you're not just out there taking any clients. And I'm sure when you started a decade ago, 
anybody who had, you know, could fog a mirror would probably be a good client as long as they paid the bills. But now you've really niched down and we're going to kind of dive into how that's changed your business. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about the size of the business. I mean, I, whether that be number of employees, revenue, growth, something like that. I mean, give us whatever you can share to try to put it in perspective. So the audience knows, gives us a little bit of a feel for that. Uh, yeah. So we do a few million dollars a year. Uh, we're a very small business. I mean, we wrote to 15, 16 people. We grew about 30% last year. So uh, it was a great year last year. Yeah, healthy. Uh, and uh, and uh, we're up to the races. Yeah. So Perfect. I think that probably gives you some uh, some context. That's awesome. That's a healthy business. Very good. All right. So based upon the fact that your agency is an expert in and around this whole B2B you know, digital marketing, and particularly what we're going to talk about today, which is the changing landscape of how B2B is buying and how to market to it. Could you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? Because I know there's been a lot of changes and I know you are have adjusted your business and that's been a big difference in how you've been able to build a seven-figure business while so many other agencies are are languishing on the <laughs> on the side of the road. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Talk to us a little bit about how that's changing and how you've been able to adjust. Well, maybe we could look at this from two different angles. On the one side, there's like how B2B buying is changing from the point of view of the buyer, if you will, especially larger B2B organizations. That B2B buying committee is continuing to increase in size every year. CEB Gartner have been really the leaders in this research and examining the evolving and changing B2B buying group. What's interesting about it well, it forces marketers down this notion of trying to, in some ways, predict, you know, who are the six to eight members of the B2B buying committee that I'm encountering? And then what are the digital experience that I need to create for them? And you see this being translated into buyer personas and content strategies, et cetera, to appeal to the various members of that buying group. And it's really creating a lot of complexity for marketers. And it's happening at the same time where CEB Gartner's research is showing that as the size of the buying committee goes up, their propensity not to buy anything also goes up. The safe choice to decide not to spend money is actually a more likely choice the more people that are involved in that decision. So it's a real struggle for marketers. On the one hand, waging a war with complexity in the marketing system and environment that they need to create because they need it to appeal to more people. And it's happening at the exact same time that the propensity to buy is going down. So let me ask you something based around that. Your opinion, do you think it's because marketers are overcomplicating that? Or do you think it's because of the size of the buying group and the uncertainty of having all these different opinions and thoughts on what's right which one do you, do you think it's a cause and effect or which one do you think is leading the charge or the, or the issue there? I don't think it's because marketers are complicating. I think marketers are trying to figure out what to, how to deal with it, with this dynamic that they're encountering. But I do think it's just that human dynamic of more people with more opinions around the table and the notion that business decisions today are expected to be more collaborative than, say, they were a decade ago. I have a tendency to agree. My logistics company, I owned a logistics company, started in 2003, sold in 2016. And what I found is that at the end of that, you know, the buying decisions were a lot more collaborative and it just seemed like it extended the sales cycle, right? It made that sales cycle that much longer. 
than in the early days of my business where, you know, you could have one person that was making the decision. And then later on it was, you know, four five, six, seven people that you had to please and get through, you know, every level of scrutiny just in order to get them to pull the trigger. So I have every VP of sales, I think would agree with what you just said. I think that that's exactly (laughs) what they're experiencing. Yep. Perfect. Okay. So now that we understand that, and now we've got that basic concept down, tell us a little bit whether there's other changes or maybe you dive into a little bit about how you need to change your approach in marketing to that audience now, right? I mean, I think that's understanding that it's changing is one thing, but understand taking some insight from a guy like you who has been able to build a seven-figure business, selling into that market could be really powerful. Could you help us with that a little bit? Well, it's interesting because I think where I might kind of turn that a little bit is to say, we talk about how the B2B buying has changed. And then as we start to pivot the conversation to how to sell into it, how does that change? Well, man, that's where there is no shortage of punditry available online. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's more people to tell you how the world of sales has changed and marketing has changed and the old school methods don't work and on. And none of them um, have an agenda. Yeah, none of them have an agenda. None of them are trying to sell anything, certainly not this white paper. But, <laughs> you know, I do think that we've been introduced with a lot of new um, sales enablement technologies. And in some ways, a lot of the the air that's been in the balloon, available in the balloon for this, for this conversation about the new sales environment, a lot of that has been taken up by SaaS companies, as you say, SaaS companies with an agenda. And I think they may have over-egged the pudding a little bit. I think they may have, yes, B2B buying committees have changed. And, but in some ways, the change on the tool set to connect with those buyers is in some way completely disconnected from the change that's happened to buyers. Like in some ways, none of the tool set evolutions have really evolved in a way that are designed to, or magically designed to connect with this new buying group. They're almost like completely separate phenomenons happening in the same time. Right. So the sky's not really falling. It just, sometimes it fits the narrative for people that are trying to sell into that, right? It's like anything else. I mean, the insurance industry has done it forever, right? I mean, the what if, you know, things are changing. You need to get it now, right? And that's the narrative that they're, some of them are trying to paint. Hey, and I get it. They're trying to figure it out too, right? I mean, they understand things are changing. They've got a different type of industry and product with SaaS. And so they're learning a lot as they move along. And so tell us a little bit of maybe about how you've done it. I mean, how have you adjusted your business to market to the B2B industry? Because I mean, manufacturing, you're selling to manufacturers predominantly these days. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so let's unpack that a little bit as we think about an agency. And you just said it as we started that, you know, anybody that could fog a mirror would be a great client for an agency in your early days, right? Yep. But it's interesting. I would ask you to go out and then try to find a prospect list of everybody that'll fog a mirror. And right there is where your problems start, right? You know, how do you come up with the 500 people that I need to speak to that are actually going to move my business forward? You can't get there unless you are tightly positioned as a professional services organization. So our focus on working with B2B manufacturers of a certain size and scale that typically work within more complex selling environments, that narrowing down, that niching, or if you will here in Canada, niching (laughs) of, of our service 
also, frankly, just enables us to find out who we need to talk to. And it's surprising to me how many professional services firms miss that critical step. And you ask them, they talk to you about challenges in their marketing, and you, you know, the first thing out of your mouth is, well, who are you looking to speak to? Who are your target clients? Who are the top 1,000 people who you'd love to be in a conversation with? And they can't give you that list. That's a huge problem. Yeah, for sure. So the competing interests that these agencies get are from the software, um, basically more the inbound marketing influence that's happening in marketing these days, which suggests that all you need to do is put out content and tweet and post on Facebook or what have you, and you're going to get this endless slew of inbound leads, and you'll never have to do that nasty cold call again. And I'm here to tell any professional services entrepreneur that that's just not true. I think that the number one sales tool for most professional services organizations that are looking to expand the reach of their expertise, the number one sales tool that they have at their disposal is their phone. Yeah, it's interesting because we were taught before we hit record, you mentioned that would be one of the biggest tips that you would give B2B service companies like yourself. And so, you know, so you've tried a lot of the content stuff. You've tried a lot of the social, you've tried a lot of these, you know, let's call it that HubSpot type mentality with the inbound marketing that they've kind of coined and you haven't seen the results, but when you pick up the phone, you've been able to grow. Well, now, to be fair, I think everybody's looking for a, you know, have to, has to arrive at a marketing that works for them. And it's not that the inbound pieces don't work at all. And we haven't had success with content marketing. Of course we have, but you know, in order to create a sales engine that is predictable and that you can dial up and dial down it as you need to, that isn't something that is done exclusively with that inbound content model. It is something that you need to be more focused on. I think that you can look at, at, at complementing what is seen as a more a traditional outbound sales model with more ABM account-based marketing approaches to leveraging that content that you, you may have been producing for your misguided uh, mimicking of a SaaS company marketing effort. I think you can use that in other ways to help surround your prospects as warm them for that outreach that may eventually be coming via phone. Okay. Interesting. So now we're getting to the root of it. Let's talk about that because you just mentioned something, you know, you said content marketing has value and using it having a strong sales and marketing mix. And then you talked about obviously leveraging the phone. And then you talked about ABM, which is much more strategic, you know, content marketing and leveraging that type of, you know, very narrowed down, you know, topics and pain points and things that speak to that exact client or that exact niche. And so how are you using that? Is that the strategy that you guys use inside to really go out and get new business? Or maybe you can unpack that for us. If you were to put together a list of a hundred people you wanted to talk to in the next, you know, three to six months, right? In the next six months, what would that look like for your company? In terms of how we would begin to reach out, of course, different platforms have different restrictions in terms of how many people you actually need to have on that list in order to target the list, as you mentioned, LinkedIn is different than Facebook, et cetera. But we're getting into those specifics. I think you look at- Yeah, whether it be pages. 100 or 500, just a yeah, list, 500 of defined, a, a defined list of buyers. Exactly. And that defined list of buyers needs to be more than just a defined list of buyers. You know, the only commonality can't be that they, you want to sell to them. The commonality also, they have to share a lot of other things in common so that you can come up with a piece of content 
or a series of content ideas that can actually appeal across the group and have some level of, of targeting efficiency in doing so. And so I would suggest warming up that list by doing some paid social promotion into those lists. And then I think it's a combination, frankly, of phone and email outreach at cadence that gets you to that level of touches that you need to get to in order to get an engaged prospect and have a conversation. And most people are finding in many sectors, of course, it changes. But, you know, for instance, in manufacturing, it's approximately eight touches or so before you can move a B2B prospect down the next stage of the funnel. So you need to show that discipline and persistence in terms of reaching out. Got it. Makes sense. So could you unpack that paid social for us? Could you give us an example of what that might look like? Because I mean, when you say paid social, it could be almost anything, right? It could be a piece of content that you're trying to drive traffic and then retarget them for later you know, ads that are going to bring them down the funnel that much further. It could be a lead gen piece you know, where you're trying to get them to opt into some sort of a white paper. I mean, what would something like that look like? I mean, what are your thoughts on where have you seen the most success? You know, personally, we have a website redesign guide for manufacturers that is, I think it could only be really characterized as exhaustive. I'm just, (laughs) I'm in awe of the team for having produced it, frankly, because it literally is a complete A to Z of, of what manufacturers need to be thinking about as they redesign a global manufacturing web presence. Everything from server considerations in China to considerations around you know, redirect right into the weeds, you know. Promoting that guide, you know, received a lot of positive reviews on LinkedIn, et cetera. So promoting that guide has been one of our more successful kind of warm-up pieces. I would say maybe one of the difficulties with it is that it, if you're not in the mindset to redesign a website, well, then you're obviously not going to be inclined to click on that guide. So, you know, it, like all tools, in some ways, what's good about it is also what's limiting about it. Sure. So you're doing paid ads on LinkedIn to kind of put that out there to your target market? Yeah, that's one way that we do it. Gotcha. Indeed. Perfect. Okay, awesome. So now that we kind of got an example there, let's talk a little bit about the phone and email outreach. You said there was a cadence and a strategy behind it. And I'm assuming there's some content and some other things in, incorporated in there that'll go in conjunction with how the how that paid social campaign works. Can you kind of connect the dots there a little bit and share with us how that would might flow? Yeah. I've been short of actually reading out sequences and showing you some voicemail scripts, or so, I suppose. I would put it like this. I think that there's a lot of advice out there about how to sell via the phone and how to spark those conversations. And I think that some of that advice is incredibly helpful to entrepreneurs But I would say that the biggest barrier that we have to doing this work as entrepreneurs is basically picking up the phone. It isn't about what we say if somebody answers. It's about just making the decision to pick it up. So I would tell people to, you know, what helps you get the courage to do that is to have a bit of a script in place, obviously. Again, you can get lots of advice, lots of books out there to and you're going to have to wade through that yourself a little bit. You know, we've landed on an approach that works for us. That's a combination of advice that we've received over the years and just frankly our personal experience. But having that script in front of you, knowing what you're going to say from a voicemail perspective, and then frankly, get out of your own way and just make the calls. 
and be human when somebody connects and try not to be particularly robotic, even though you have that script in front of you. I think we can sometimes over-program, if you will. And it's one of the dangers I've seen in larger sales organizations is, frankly, the marketing team has programmed the sales script and you know, marketing people that haven't had haven't been within 50 feet of a prospect ever and saying how to talk to them. And that can be obviously quite a challenge. Sure. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. So when you talk about, and I just want to dissect this a little bit, would you normally have your salespeople do an outreach via email and then follow up with a phone call? Or is it a phone call, then an email? I know that I'm getting down and really down into the weeds, but I'd love to try to understand your strategy just a little <laughs> bit because I think modeling is what a lot of people can do and take away from an episode like this, right? They can model if they see a little bit of success using, and of course they have to tweak it to their own, of course. I mean, you're not going to create a cookie cutter approach, but you know, but sometimes those differences of whether an email comes first before the call, or if you do a paid social campaign to kind of get the word out there beforehand. I think that makes a big difference when you're yeah. approaching a prospect, which in reality is cold. Absolutely, Dennis. I appreciate it. I would say that we have experimented a lot with both phone first and email first, as well as even LinkedIn connection requests coming first. I would say to you that we not reached conclusive data. It's really quite funny. It's varied by campaign to campaign and quarter to quarter in some ways as to whether the phone first or the email first shows the most success. But what I will say is, is that it's surprising how little connection there is between the two. So what I would say to your listeners is most times when you get somebody on the phone, even if you've emailed them three times, they may not recognize in that phone call, that email may never come up. They probably will not connect that email that they've either received or not or deleted or what have you. They will not connect that to the call and vice versa. If you get an engagement or a response back on the email, it will almost never reference the fact that you've left them three voicemails. Gotcha. So, so yeah, don't get too bogged in that. But I would say one thing that almost conclusively that we've noticed is I would, I would wait a little bit on the LinkedIn connection request. I would be a few phone and emails before I started the LinkedIn request. Interesting. Very interesting. So to pivot really quick before we close this out, because I want to just get a couple more questions in here. You're doing paid LinkedIn ads. And for a lot of companies, that's a little scary because obviously the typical cost per lead is a little bit higher than a Facebook or a Google, right? And so have you been seeing what type of ROIs or what type of metrics are you seeing on that? Just kind of the short version of that. Has it been a worthwhile investment? Are you guys still evaluating it? Where are you at in that process? I would say that we've scaled back our investment in LinkedIn over time. We have found that we were doing it in a more intense way and not just doing it to warm up very select targeted lists, but perhaps looking a little more broadly. It was not, the ROI wasn't there. So we now deploy it on a much more limited basis and, and do it in conjunction with the other outreach. So I hope that answers your question. So the fact that you're still doing it, you're just a lot more strategic, but you must be seeing some sort of an ROI. At least you're covering your cost or some sort of ROI or chances are you probably would have picked up another strategy by now. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting too, because I, what I have seen, although I, I very rarely see somebody when I'm talking to them on the phone, reference something that an email that re they received, it's surprising how often I've gotten the, yeah, I've seen your ad all over LinkedIn. Oh, that's like, perfect. Like, 
So, so you've gone from not knowing who Kula Partners was to thinking in some way that we must be a bit of a household name because you've just been seeing us. Yeah, great. So if we can get that happening and facilitating a sales dialogue, then so be it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That's huge. And just in itself right there, the just the brand awareness and the familiarity and the you know the little bit of a trust there is make big difference when your sales team is reaching out on a cold basis. So for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, listen, we're going to do two questions rapid fire as we wrap up here. What's your favorite growth tool or software that you're using to grow your business? I'm going to stick to my previous answer and say the phone. The phone. Love it. <laughs> and would be contrarian. No, nope, that's fine. I love it. Uh, hey, do what works. So, what book have you read recently, or would you recommend to the audience? Uh, you know, that just left a lasting impression on you. I would say I reread this fairly often, but it's uh, not a new book at all. The Art of Possibility by Rosamund Stone Zander and Ben Zander. Highly recommend that the listeners read The Art of Possibility. I think uh, for anybody that leads teams and frankly interacts with people, which is all of us. It's an incredibly, incredibly helpful book. Love it. Well, listen, before we close out, let everybody know how they can connect with you, learn more about Kula Partners, and we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah. I welcome anyone to uh, just go to kulapartners.com. It's K-U-L-A partners.com. And uh, you can learn all about us there. And feel free to connect with me personally on Twitter. I'm at the at P-I-R-I-E. Perfect. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. Love the fact that you guys have niched down into that B2B manufacturing space. Congrats on all your success. And I'll make sure I put those links in the show notes and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. An absolute pleasure, Dennis. Thank you. Thanks, Carmen. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.